to Logically Faithful, this is Kaldun. Uh, in this episode, I'll be interviewing Paul Copain, who is an amazing Christian apologist in his own right. Uh, so go ahead and give it a listen. I would appreciate if you gave some feedback on iTunes and or, of course, on our uh, website. You can go ahead and make some comments there. Uh, when you do a review and when you do a like or subscribe, it does help me to continue doing what I'm doing. So I do appreciate your support in doing that. Let's go ahead and get started. Paul, uh, before I get started, I want to do some introductions for you, but uh, what drives you? What is it that motivates you to continue doing what you're doing, speaking around the world, um, publishing? You've got some great material out there. It's got a moral monster, which is really making a difference. Um, coming to terms with the justice of God, the gospel, and the marketplace of ideas. One of my favorites is um, true for you, not true for me. Mm-hmm. Tell me what it is about you that drives you and to continue doing what you're doing? Well, of course, uh, fundamentally it's uh, belonging to God and uh, having been transformed by the, the gospel and, and also connected to that has been my own journey uh, and having found uh, apologetics, uh, having found that the faith that my parents had and lived out so wonderfully uh, was a faith that I could own not just because it made me feel good, not because it was gave me comfort and security, um, although it certainly does, but, uh, but because it is true. And uh, during my high school years and beyond, I came to see that the Christian faith actually had solid objective reasons in support of it, that it was not simply a, a faith that I could Um, just kind of adopt from my parents without thinking about it, but it was something that uh, I could own for myself uh, because it was true. Uh, And so so this was something that has been important to me and has been helpful in in my own pilgrimage, uh, helping to deal with doubts, helping to deal with uh, objections to the Christian faith, Mm -hmm. helping to put things together for me. Uh, in a way that, uh, that makes excellent sense. That uh, that should, you know, and I see that the Christian faith. So, like C.S. Lewis said, he says, "I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun exists." He says, "I believe not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else." Mm-hmm. And that illumination, the the clarity that the Christian faith brings, uh, it it addresses and answers issues that would, as, uh, as one philosopher said, would otherwise be intractable in, in other, in other uh, worldviews. So I, I just find that the, the light that the Christian faith brings to me, and as I've talked to people, the light that it brings to others is something that I myself want to, uh, to, to pass on to others. It's as though the, the ways in which I've been helped, uh, the ways in which my faith has been strengthened, um, I want to impart to others, given the, the training and interest uh, and even personality type yes. uh, that I that I that I uh, that I have. You know, these are uh, these are what are behind why I'm engaging in what I what I do. Universalism, John Hick, and others uh, will tell you that. There are many lights, one lamp, or something to that effect. There's always different metaphors. This light within you, to light you to the transcendent, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Many claim there are many paths to this. 
um, people who are really dedicated to seeing that. And many people believe different values of truth. I mean, on a philosophical perspective, don't we even have to begin to even define these things before we can defend them? Um, how do you wrap your mind around saying, why Christ among a world of others? Yeah, yeah well, it is, it is Christ uh, who came into the world, who brings light to all, uh, as uh, John 1 says. And I... As I look at the various, and again, John Hick was a universalist, a pluralist, um, that there are different uh, pathways, that there are uh, many different uh, religions that are uh, ways in which we can find salvation or liberation, that it's not simply the Christian, it's not simply the Christian faith or Jesus Christ in particular. Uh, and and I would I would simply say as you look at the kinds of things that the Christian faith uh, presents, for example, uh, Jesus Christ who claims to be the unique revelation of God, uh, unlike Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius, uh, and how in a very conservative Jewish setting uh, you have Jesus followers who are worshiping him. Uh, and then, not simply Jesus claiming this, not simply Jesus, uh, follow, Jesus followers believing it, but Jesus bodily rises from the dead to mm. vindicate those claims. And we can add that the Christian faith presents a, a unique uh, path of salvation in that the Christian faith is one that emphasizes grace as opposed to human achievement, that salvation somehow rests on our shoulders that it is distinctive in this way as well. And we could add, and, and I know you're familiar with this, that the Christian faith is also checkable. It is unique in the fact that the Christian faith opens itself up to scrutiny, that it opens itself up to investigation. Uh, as the Apostle Paul said when he was on trial, these things that were not done in a corner. Mm -hmm. uh, the Christian faith is open to uh, scrutiny. And, uh, and again, I can go down the list. But, okay. but, uh, but again, when the pluralists like John Hick is going to say, well, the Christian faith is just one of many pathways. Right. Uh, the the problem is it doesn't. It's not being being fair to the Christian faith itself, um, but it also requires uh, that the Christian faith has to be watered down or distorted. It doesn't allow the Christian faith to be presented as is. Uh, Jesus cannot be the revelation of God, the unique, the Son of God, the third, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, it's you, you, Jesus has to be you know, a mere human who is, who is highly God-conscious, but cannot be divine. Mm. Uh, he cannot be the one who, uh, whom God raised from the dead. Uh, so they have to water down the evidence for the, uh, for the divinity of Jesus, that this developed mm. over time, John Hick would say, or, mm. or the bodily resurrection of Jesus has to play down or water down the, the evidence for that. And so it doesn't actually allow the Christian faith to be the Christian faith. There has to be some sort of a liberal, uh, liberal view of Jesus uh, as opposed to allowing the Christian faith to be what it is. And so, uh, again, we can talk about a number of things, but, uh, but, but I think one motivation behind, uh, behind the uh, pluralist <coughs> impulse is that well, what, what about... Uh, those others who, who grow up in traditions that uh, haven't heard 
of the good news of Jesus and so forth, uh, you know, are they somehow cut off from right. that? And, and again, in my book, True For You, But Up For Me, I go into the details on that. But, but it's, not as though, it's not as though someone, someone is cut off from salvation simply because he grew up in a certain region where he hasn't heard the gospel. The question is, what has he done with the light that he has received? Um, and, uh, and, and so we can go into the details of this, but, but I, I think fundamentally the Christian faith is in the same place as the, as the pluralist. The pluralist accuses the Christian uh, or charges the Christian with being you know, geographically limited, which mm -hmm. is kind of like pluralism, uh, which, is, uh, which is exclusive, which is kind of like pluralism. The pluralist says, no, the Christian faith cannot remain as it is. It has to be watered down. Mm -hmm. It has to be chiseled away so that uh, something that looks like a, a very uh, human, non-divine, non-resurrected Jesus, that's the kind that the pluralist can live with. So, so again, uh, there's a, the, the pluralist charges the Christian with thinking that he has this inside scoop, that he has some sort of insider information that other people don't have. Well, that's just what the, that's what the pluralist is doing. He believes that he has a virtue that the Christian doesn't have. He believes he has access to, uh, in a sense, to the whole elephant. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with that? Yes. Uh, the, the blind men touching their different, the different parts of the elephant, and one person says it's a wall or it's a snake or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the pluralist says that the Christian claims that he can see everything, uh, the, you know, rather than being culturally limited and only being able to see one part of it. Well, the pluralist doesn't think that he's just one blind man touching one part of the elephant. And, you know, he's speaking about the whole elephant, that he can see these things clearly. And the Christian is, uh, is the one who only sees part of the picture uh, or touches part of the picture. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it, it, they're logically... Uh, in the same position. So, mm -hmm. so the pluralist is not improving upon the situation because he believes that he has this access to, uh, to, to the truth. And, and even so, the pluralist believes that all religions are culturally conditioned attempts to get at this ultimate reality, what we some call God. Um, but is the pluralist himself culturally conditioned? How is the, how is the culturally con cultural conditioning uh, avoided by the pluralist as though he can rise above that cultural conditioning and see things clearly, whereas the, the Christian or the Muslim or the Buddhist is culturally conditioned and can't see mm. those things clearly. So, so again, those are a few things that I would say in response okay. to the religious pluralists, that there are just a number of, uh, number of problems and inconsistencies, and uh, again, charging the Christian with certain things that I would say the pluralist was guilty of. And let me go back here. So I'm a, once again, I'm here with uh, Paul Copain. From, is it? Uh, Copain. Copain, of course. Forgive me, brother. Paul Copain. You are a professor of philosophy in Florida, mm -hmm. uh, which is a university? Palm Beach Atlantic University. Palm Beach, Palm Beach Atlantic University. I can hear the philosopher coming out of you because you're diving into the presuppositions and backdrops and um, worldviews that people are addressing when they do raise these objections. Um, that's one of the things we need to do. Is understand not just answer a question but address the question behind the question, right? Yeah, absolutely. That. Yeah, you do that brilliantly in your books, by the way, in your talks. So yeah, I admire you a lot for that and learn a lot from that. Good, thanks. Regarding the issue of the pluralist, let's let's move it down the road a little bit. Now, one of the questions that people raise in the uh, uh, pluralist perspective is the question of relativism, which uh, we just talked about. You just did a video series on that, right? Mm -hmm or a short video uh, for PragerU. Mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing that. 
we are conditioned to see the world in our sociological perspective, in our mindset, in our worldview, in our uh, um, even physiologically. That's how we created. Um, Immanuel Kant talked about the numus. We can't see this. All we can see is what we're programmed. Space-time, we're limited by these axioms. Uh, the world around us limits us to what we think is right. Uh, Christians of old have harped on uh, the absolute truth of the gospel, or the absolute truth of, of our ethical situations. But the fact of the matter is, the only one who has objective access to this other realm is the one who has omniscient knowledge. We don't have access to this. And different Christian perspectives, the Orthodox Catholics and others, disagree about what, even an issue like abortion or um, infallibility of the scriptures. For yourself, as a believer, as a man of God, how do you draw the line between becoming completely dogmatic where you don't even hear the other side and relativistic where you just throw your hands up and say whatever it goes? Where do you, how do you balance that yeah. as a philosopher, as a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. Well, going to Immanuel Kant, of course, his own uh, distinction between the, uh, the noumenal and the phenomenal, that there is a realm that is beyond us that we don't have access to, uh, does raise the question, um, how do you know that? How do you know that there is that realm beyond? Uh, how do you know that there is just that we're simply dealing with appearances rather than uh, having access to reality? The person who says we can't have access to reality mm -hmm. uh, presumably has some access to reality in, in order to be able to know that. Right. So, so I, I would say that even the you know Kant raises some important questions and, and I think does remind us about the importance of humility and so on. Uh, but again, it can't be a fully consistent position here that uh, that we can know certain things even if we don't know them exhaustively mm -hmm. or uh, you know with you know with you know with absolute uh, you know certainty and so forth. But, uh, but again, going back to the issue of the, uh, of the Christian faith and maybe differences within uh, the Christian tradition, I mean, I think there are some basics that uh, we, can, we can agree on. There are some, uh, I, I know that at the margins, a liberal Christianity, the, 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 the infallibility of scripture mm -hmm. or issues like abortion and so forth. I mean, I think there's been a, a tradition uh, that has... Uh, rejected abortion has uh, has embraced the infallibility of scripture, but, mm -hmm. but again, around the margins, say mainline denominations, those sorts of things are are being challenged or pushed back on. But I think speaking more uh, more generally, when it comes to denominational issues and and confidence about certain things, well, uh, I emphasize keeping the main thing the main thing. Mm -hmm. There are certain creeds, there are certain uh, certain tenets of the Christian faith that have uh, held. Uh, regardless of those uh, denominational differences. And I, I emphasize how uh, that denomination has the sense of, you know, we have you know, the, the cognate denominator, that there's a common denominator that brings us together, that, uh, that think these are the things that we can agree to uh, as Christians, that these, these have been the fundamentals that have defined the Christian faith over the centuries, and, uh, and that, uh, that bring us together despite some of those secondary differences. So it's important for us to, uh, to remember that, uh, you know, as, as one, one uh, Lutheran theologian uh, put it, he said, in, you know, in essentials, liberty, in non-essentials, unity, uh, in all things, sorry, let me go back, let's cut that, let me do this here, yeah, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, all things charity, that we yes. need to focus on the main things that unite us, 
uh, and, folk, and then on those secondary issues that are not as pressing, that are not connected to salvation and so forth, that we, uh, you know, or even Christian, Christian living and so forth, that we give liberty, like uh, meat offered to idols and so forth as an mm -hmm. issue. People can have different convictions on those right. things, whether to eat that. But, uh, but Paul is emphasizing uh, that we you know, ought to keep the main thing the main thing and accept one another as brother and sister in Christ and so forth. So, and again, in, 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 as we go about all of these things, to show love to one another. Okay. And that love is, Jesus said, they shall know you by your love, yeah. not your understanding of truth or objective. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, there is, Jesus said, you know, that, you know, John thirteen thirty five that yeah. uh, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Right. Uh, but of course, uh, doctrine is certainly critical, but even how we disagree uh, is going to be important. Uh, Paul said that the Lord's servant is... Uh, you know, must not argue uh, that we uh, engage in uh, these uh, meaningless controver controversies and endless disputes and so forth, um, that there ought to be a, a principled way of engaging. And Paul, of course, was very strong about the truth that, the, that, the, that doctrine does matter. Um, but but again, yeah, again, how do we disagree right. how about do we, these things? How do, we, how do we engage with people yeah. who uh, think differently than we do? Uh, so moving on the pathway here, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Judge not. Mm -hmm. right. To be judged, probably one of the favorite verses of some of my liberal colleagues. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. How do we stand up? Because I see this, Paul, um, among people who are strongly convicted by what they believe. Yeah. It, it follows logically that anyone who does not follow this path, hypothetically... And it must be wrong, either they're mentally unstable, the lights are not on upstairs, or there's something malevolent about them. Mm -hmm. Is there, how do you walk that line, yeah. the judgment of those who are, obviously we think they're wrong, yeah, yeah. or yeah. think we're wrong. Right, yeah. Well, a couple of things here. First, when Jesus is saying this in Matthew 7, don't judge lest you also be judged, mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of people think that this means not saying anybody is wrong, mm -hmm. which is, of course is not what Jesus is saying. He uh, obviously is saying that there's an issue that needs to be addressed. He says that um, there is a speck in your brother's eye. Uh, no one likes a speck in one's eye. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs to be taken out. It needs to be removed. Uh, Jesus says, first, check yourself. Take the log, the plank out of your own eye, and then... Mm -hmm you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, there needs, there's the requirement for self-examination uh, rather than going in with a sense of moral superiority and, uh, and acting as though you are above and beyond that particular issue that uh, you are invulnerable to temptation and so forth. Uh, first, check yourself. First, uh, understand your own frailty, your own sinfulness, your own weakness, and so on. Uh, and then, with that in mind, going to help someone as a fellow sinner, as someone who is in need of God's grace and, and the forgiveness of others, uh, that we're all part of this together. Uh, so you go with that spirit. Uh, Paul says something similar in, uh, in Galatians 6. When he says, if, you, if a brother or sister is overtaken in a fault or a sin, you who are spiritual, you who have the spirit of God, uh, you know, ought to restore that person mm -hmm in a spirit of gentleness, mm. looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. So we have, you know, the judging there has to be, in Matthew 7, has to do with having the sense of moral superiority at the failure of someone else. Um, 
but it doesn't. But it's not as though Jesus is. So that's judgmentalism. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that we're not to be uh, discerning and and making right judgments. In fact, John in John seven twenty four, Jesus says, "Don't judge by mere appearances, but make a right judgment." Okay. So, so there's a call for making a proper assessment rather than a superficial one. Uh -huh. But again, we cannot evade making judgments. We will make judgments all the time. Not making a judgment is a judgment. Yeah, or, or saying, you're, you know, who are you to judge someone else? You're judging that person for judging, judging someone else. So we can divide maybe Jesus, the Lord Jesus' statement as saying, when, you, when he talked about judging, there's a difference between discerning and condemning. And he's willing more, more for the latter. Right. Yeah, I mean, the I, there, yeah, there, there's the, the, the sense of condemnation. Mm. Uh, I mean, of course, Jesus does indeed share in, you know, he does offer words of condemnation and judgment against the Pharisees and religious leaders in right. Matthew 23. Um, but what Jesus is, uh, is telling us here is that uh, while, you know, John, you know, John 724, that you know, judgments are important, that we teach our children to make judgments between mm. good and evil and to go on the, the pathway of righteousness and so forth. So these are vital uh, for us. But, uh, but to act as though we are not in need of grace, we are not in need of forgiveness, to act as though we are morally superior because uh, that person has done that and, and, and we're better than that, um, that fails to understand the, the fact that we are in need of God's grace, that we are in need of uh, you know, forgiveness from God. And so we ought to remember that we go to another person as a fellow sinner, as someone who is also in need of grace. Uh, that it's often, you know, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Mm. I think so often we think we can come down hard on mm -hmm. someone that that's going to lead that person to repentance. And I think more often than not, uh, it's going to be uh, kindness. It's going to be gentleness. It's mm -hmm. going to be a, you know, going to a person as a fellow sinner mm -hmm. rather than uh, as though you're better than that person. Mm -hmm. You're telling that person um, how to do things. So I think that kind of a spirit is what yeah. Jesus is calling us to. Being from the Middle East, sometimes I appreciate when my brothers are direct. They go mm -hmm. for the jugular right away from me, mm -hmm. like when I'm off the bad path. But I'll, you develop that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it, it takes wisdom to know the difference. Sure, sure. Okay, let's uh, shift the conversation toward uh, science a little bit. Then we'll move into one of your one of the best books I've, I've had engaged in, which is the uh, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? So you just published or recently um, work... Some other things are being published on Christianity and science and intermingling between the two. Uh, give us a, a, a brief overview of uh, the, was it Dictionary of Science? Dictionary of Christianity and Science, uh, Zondervan, yeah. Yes. Uh, I want to give a plug for that book. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. As a believer, God, I see the world, or as Newton talked about, God created two worlds. You, you want to take, two books? Yeah, yeah, excuse yeah, me, yeah, two yeah. books. Yes, yeah, the, yeah. the Book of Science. Go ahead and expand on that. I'll, I'll let you take that up and how we can see the world from that perspective. Yeah, yeah it's two, been, you know, kind of a long, long-standing metaphor where God, uh, you know, you know, Francis Bacon, for example, talked about um, how God has revealed Himself not only in His Word, mm -hmm. uh, but also in His world, world or yeah. in His works. Uh, you know, that as we look at the. Uh, as we look at the realm of the natural world and study it through science, 
that we see that God has revealed himself in the natural world. We see order, we see beauty, we see power, mm -hmm. uh, we see intelligence, uh, we see creativity. Uh, that These are manifestations of the, uh, the, the mind, the handiwork of God, and that these are a way of pointing us in the direction of God and his character and so forth. And so that's why Romans 1 talks about, you know, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power mm -hmm. and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that people are without excuse. So, so we do see that there is this, uh, the world uh, as well as the, the word of God uh, in which we have uh, special revelation. We have God's a path of uh, you know of salvation that is presented to us through Jesus Christ, and so I mean as Galileo said that when the scriptures and the the natural world are under are properly understood properly interpreted that there will fundamentally be no conflict between the two of them. <clears throat> so uh, so we uh, we find that uh, that science is a way in which we can see. The, the, the workings of God through the processes that he's put in place. Uh, so, for example, when the psalmist says, <clears throat> you know, you knit me together in my mother's womb, mm -hmm. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, it doesn't mean that God directly created the psalmist, mm -hmm. but it does mean that God, uh, through wisdom, through intelligence, uh, uh, put together the whole process by which the psalmist could uh, you know, be conceived oh, and yes. born and and, uh, and and so forth. That it, it is indeed a fearful and wonderful thing uh, that you see the handiwork of God through this whole process. So even though it's indirect, even though it uses what uh, you know, philosophers uh, you know, would call secondary causes, yes. uh, that God is the one who is behind these things. That it still reveals the uh, the mind, the intelligence, the the planning of God. Let's raise a mild objection. I don't know how mild it is, but David Hume talked about this. The same hand that made the world and designed the DNA molecule, of course, Hume didn't talk about DNA, but bringing it to modern vernacular. You also see volcanic eruptions. You see cancer. You see threats. You see decay. You see bloodletting. The same world. And those things make you turn and say, what on earth? This is the hand of a benevolent being? This leads us later on to the problem of evil. But God did make this. And this leads us to the question of evolution, right? Death before the fall, or fall, etc. Mm. How do you reconcile that with the, with the um, that God is love, as Jesus talked about in First John, which the other creationists talk about a lot? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, again, I don't know what your take is on all these things. I'll just give a yeah. few uh, a few thoughts on, uh, on how I see these things. Well, first... Um, the, when it comes to the you know, death before the fall, I do think that there are, is animal death before the fall. We see uh, in the latter chapters of Job, in Psalm 104, that God is the one who puts a food chain in place. And this is seen as a divine provision. It's, you know, God, it says these lions in Psalm 104, seek their prey mm. from, you know, you know, from God. You know, that God is the one who, uh, who provides for them. Yeah. Uh, and and it says later on in Psalm 104 that you know God opens His hand, uh, you know, for them, for these creatures that seek their food from God. It said, and it is good. So there is the same word that's used in Genesis one, 
that is now being used here. And it is, I think, very important for us to, uh, to keep in mind that the, the food chain, the uh, you know, predatory animals and so forth, mm-hmm. um, they've been with us. Uh, you know, again, they were on the scene before human beings came on the scene. There was animal death before uh, human beings were around. And uh, so it's not as though all death came through human rebellion. But rather, you know that uh, that uh, that humans uh, that uh, you know that in their separation from God became vulnerable to uh, to death. God had withdrawn His sustaining grace, and so they become vulnerable to um, their mortality um, that God had uh, you know God has sustained human beings in life. Uh, so we can talk about uh, you know humans being created even with mortal bodies, but God sustaining them uh, in uh, in a sense uh, you know. You know preserving them from death while they're in fellowship with him. And then you know, we would say that they became vulnerable to those predatory animals, mm-hmm. to volcanoes, to hurricanes, to, er- you know, to earthquakes and so forth, things which actually are generally beneficial so long as human beings aren't affected by them. Um, you know, you have, if you didn't have uh, earthquakes mm-hmm. that uh, lead to, you know, again, this part of tectonic, you know, right. this tectonic plate shifting, continent building, uh, you know, as mountains are built, uh, you know, there's erosion and so forth, there's soil that is created, soil that is created, and uh, without this tectonic plate shifting, and uh, you, you would have actual, uh, you know, all the soils would, r- you know, run off of the continents mm-hmm. and plant life uh, would be impossible that uh, that it, you can sustain animal life so you know and even the temperature ex- you know, temperature extremes are avoided through tornadoes through hurricanes that equalize these temperatures and, and, and make life you know livable on uh, you know on on the earth that you don't have you know, extreme temperatures uh, you know within within our atmosphere uh, but these are in a sense regulated or modulated through these forces. So there's a general benefit that comes, but when human beings are affected by those, uh, again, as a result of the fall, then we become, uh, you know, again, the, we, it's what we call, uh, you know, again, natural evil. Mm-hmm. But, but we can also say that even in the midst of natural evils, these are often wake-up calls to remind us that all is not well in the world, that we are, uh, that, that uh, this is not the ultimate world, uh, that we are still uh, in need of uh, reconciliation with God, that, uh, that often uh, through pain, uh, God, you know, C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Uh, a lot of times through natural evils, we are awakened to our own vulnerability, to, uh, to the, a reminder that things are not the way uh, that they ought to be, that there is, a, there is something that is uh, terribly wrong. Uh, and so, uh, you know, again, God is going to be, you know, there's another world to come in which we have resurrection bodies, in which uh, this, this first earth that has been created, uh, again, it's, 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 uh, it's a planned obsolescence. It is, right. a, it is a world that's been created, uh, again, it's temporary, it is not ideal, it is not ultimate, um, but it's going to give way to the ideal world, and that, uh, that there will be a world in which all sour, sorrow and suffering and, and tears will be wiped away. 
And so that is the world to which we look uh, for a, an immortal body uh, in which uh, there is uh, harmony between, you know, you know, you know, all, you know of, of all creation and so forth, in which we, of course, ultimately are in the uh, you know, unshielded presence of God, that God will dwell in the midst of his people and so forth, that that's what we look forward to. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, pain can alert us to the fact that all is not well in the world um, and that God has not removed all of these reminders from this world uh, to, to point us to the fact that, uh, that there is this, that there is something that is not right that will ultimately be rectified in the end. So, so those are some things that, you know, kind of, again, you can follow up with uh, some questions, but, uh, but again, those are some themes that I see as, I think, very relevant as we uh, think about mm -hmm. human beings placed in this world, but yet there is, things seem to also go go wrong and affect human beings and uh, bring you know, bring sorrow and heartache and so forth, and how do we work through those right, things? Right. Okay, thank you. Again, um, this is Keldon Swice. I'm here with Paul Copan. Uh, for Logically Faithful, we are, we are engaging culture redemptively and addressing suffering productively. Paul, what are the issues with suffering on a, a deeper existential level or a theological level is one of the questions that's being addressed and it's answered into this question point of the free will defense. Uh, the reform perspective rejects that. Um, part of it says that this is a, um, a plan of God the whole time. He never had a plan B. He always had this part of his plan, the suffering of Christ is there in it. Uh, our suffering is part of the whole plan. Um, how do you uh, deal with the question of saying God allows free will, like the planting of perspective, in order for us to be loving creatures? Free will is a necessary part of a creation where people can love. However, heaven is a place where people are free, but they don't choose evil or wickedness, at least in the post-perspective, not the, the pre-one, um, where they have the, the knowledge or the character of Christ. And God is the most free being there is, but he never chooses evil. And Christ being half full man, fully God, now at the stage, there is no one more free, fully man. Evil's not even on the table for him. So is, is the question of free will an adequate answer, you think, for the conundrum we face of why, or one of the reasons the divine or God allows this in our world? Things from cancer to the shooting in the schools. Well, I mean, you've raised a, a number of issues and uh, various theological perspectives here. I mean, I do think that um, you know there there are differing ways of uh, of looking at this, and there are people from a uh, you know again a uh, you know, different theological perspective uh, who will maintain a kind of a libertarian freedom up to a point. So even the Westminster Confession. Uh, maintains uh, what seems to be libertarian freedom in the garden. You're not uh, a libertarian, human, are you? I am. You are. Yeah. You are. Yeah. yeah, so that uh, human beings did have a genuine choice in the garden. Mm -hmm. I mean, God foreknew it and so forth. He knew what was going to happen. Um, but, uh, but this is uh, something that even John Calvin, I think, mm -hmm. um, supports, uh, that, uh, that there was genuine freedom within, you know, within the garden uh, and that human beings could choose to do otherwise. Um, yeah, like a reformed theologian like R.C. Sproul would, would maintain, uh, you know, had maintained that view as well. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But but I would say that fundamentally the uh, the, the free will is uh, is crucial to uh, to making sense of one human distinctiveness here that uh, that uh, you know and, and also distancing God from evil. Uh, someone like R.C. Sproul's son, R.C. Sproul Jr., maintained that God is ultimately responsible. He is mm -hmm. the author of evil. Mm -hmm. Again, that's, uh, I think, a heretical perspective. I remember that. Um, that uh, that you know, God created evil, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, which again, uh, I think is a theological confusion. Evil is not a thing. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but he is the one who is the culprit, as R.C. Sproul Jr. says. What he's trying to do is say that ultimately God is behind the emergence of sin, uh, that it was not due to Satan, it was not due to anything wrong with Adam and Eve, it wasn't anything mm. about the environment. So therefore God has to be the author of sin, even though he himself is not sinful. So again, this becomes problematic, but I think it does highlight some, some of the issues that often come up if you... You know that that sometimes God can be brought so close to being the author of evil that it becomes again a, it's uh, the scriptures distance themselves from anything like that uh, that every good and perfect gift comes from God to don't accuse God of being the one who uh, you know is uh, is is the the, the source of say, even mm. temptation and so forth uh, James one says. So, so as we look at the, the freedom of the will, keep in mind, too, that for God to create moral agents, mm -hmm. uh, only God, by definition, is, uh, is uh, you know, he, you know, sin is not an option uh, for God. Sin is not a possibility for God. God cannot be overwhelmed by some sort of a force uh, beyond himself. He cannot be led into sin uh, as though something could overpower him. Um, God is necessarily good, but when he makes creatures, they don't have the, that kind of status. They don't have the status of necessary goodness. So it is, that means it is possible for human beings to diverge from the path that we, by virtue of the use or abuse of free will, can, uh, can uh, embrace God as the ultimate good or can turn away from God as the ultimate good and cling to you know, say in the garden, mm -hmm. something that is a lesser good, something mm -hmm. that is a, uh, a non-ultimate good. So it's not as though God created something bad in the world right. and we gravitated to it. No, God created all things good, but we freely chose to, uh, uh, you know, fix our attention, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, to fix our attention on that which was created good, but yet not ultimate. And so the attention, they diverted their attention from God, the ultimate good, to a lesser good, namely this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that became the, 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 the point of, uh, of stumbling um, through the abuse of free will. So, so again, once you understand that there is a hierarchy of goods, uh, God being the ultimate good, and then lesser goods that God created, then you understand how human beings could have gone wrong, not because there is something defective in the world, but rather because humans shifted their attention freely away from God and focused on a lesser good. And again, that became a God substitute, mm. as it were. And, uh, and so they focused on something 
less than ultimate, uh, the, you know, the, the prohibitions, they focused on the, uh, this tree, and we can't even touch it lest we die, of course, mm -hmm. which was uh, going beyond what God had said. And so, so highlighting the fact that this became the focal point, uh, or the point of attention for, uh, for our first ancestors. So uh, this is the, uh, I think, what is going on here. And, and so the abuse of free will, I think, helps to explain how evil could enter into this world. Uh, well, what about the afterlife? What about human beings in the afterlife? Well, I think you can look at it in a, in a couple of different ways. One is to say that <coughs> this world is, in a sense, the staging area mm -hmm. in which we set our moral and spiritual compass uh, either toward God or away from Him. And so, in the end, you get what you want. Uh, you get what your heart ultimately desires. That could be frightening. Yeah, true, exactly. <laughs> So a second scenario could, you know, would look like this, that yes, human beings are created with free will, that's what, if you will, defines them. Right. Uh, you think it's this an essential is an, property? An, an essential property, okay. uh, some, will, some will argue, and I think there's a good case to be made for that. Well, what if it's the case that free will mm -hmm. continues, that it's logically possible that sin could occur in the new heavens and new earth, but... God, by virtue of his foreknowledge, knows that no one will ever, free, ever freely deviate from, uh, from the good. And so the pristine nature of the new heavens and new earth is maintained, that there is no sullying of it at mm. all, uh, precisely because God knows that there will never be any sort of deviation from, uh, from the good uh, in this new scenario. Okay. This leads us now to another topic. So your book, we just talked about it earlier, um, Is God a Moral Monster? You're going to release the uh, new anniversary edition, the 10th anniversary edition almost? Yeah, right? we're working on it. We're working on it, so, yeah, okay. So, uh, the thesis of that book is addressing one of the major contentious questions that's written up by the, the new atheists regarding the uh, God's slaughter of different whole groups of peoples. Some call it genocide. Others have different names for it. Uh, the questions of slavery in the scriptures, the brutality of, of those who um, claim or follow another god to be taken from the city gates and stoned to death. Uh, even children, too, who rebel against their parents. Uh, slavery, we have genocide questions. Um, so in your book, you address these, which I highly recommend, by the way. What are some of the sticking points you find for people as they're reading scriptures that they don't realize that they're bringing these other perspectives in as they're reading it. What are some ways we can navigate this as we come to difficult passages in Scripture, such as these? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that uh, when it comes to, say, the Canaanites, mm -hmm. uh, we see that uh, there is a, uh, I think a misunderstanding of what is actually going on uh, by many of the critics, like the New Atheists. Mm -hmm. um, and what you see here is a kind of last resort kind of mindset, uh, that this is something that's been going on for hundreds of years, and God waits until the time is right for the Canaanites to be, uh, to, you know, for this issue to finally be addressed. Um, and you look at the, the Canaanites and the kinds of practices that they're engaged in, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a misunderstanding. People think, oh, the Canaanites, they're, they're minding their own business, and look, mm -hmm. these, these Israelites come in. Uh, well, no, the, the Canaanites were engaged in practices that would be considered... Uh, you know, 
you know, would be considered criminal in any civilized society. You know, you have ritual prostitution, you have, you know, you, know, uh, you have incest, you have bestiality, child uh, you have child sacrifice, you have these sorts of things mm -hmm. going on. Well, again, this is not as though those Canaanites, they just got tattoos and the Israelites don't and therefore they need to be driven out or... Uh, so, so again, even some of those types of things need to be understood, that this is part of the picture. Also, when you look at um, Israel's mission to be a light to the world, you need to consider the fact that there is a, a group of people, given their, sort of their theology, uh, their, their, their gods are doing these sorts of things, mm -hmm. and the, the practices that they're carrying out, uh, that these are pernicious influences that could actually jeopardize the mission of Israel to be a light to the nations, of course, through ultimately through the Messiah, uh, that this could actually be short-circuited, and that there are great there are grave danger signs, uh, and God is pointing the to, to the people of Israel, saying, uh, "You may not know the full ramifications of it, but this is uh, this is a this is serious business. Don't go that way." There's it's like a cosmic battle is taking place. Uh, it's not as though it's just one nation invading another. Uh, no, it's actually uh, high, that there is something very serious going on here that is going to could jeopardize the, uh, the 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 blessing that the Messiah is going to bring to the entire world mm -hmm. if Israel uh, capitulates. Now, it did capitulate in a number of ways, but 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 not sufficiently so that the mission could not be carried through. So. So I think that's one example. Another example might be, well, when you look at slavery in the Bible, well, mm -hmm. I mean, do you even understand what the term is? Uh, because a lot of people associate that with antebellum slavery in the South, nice. as opposed to indentured servitude, which is taking place. That the sorts of practices in the antebellum South and the harm that came to slaves and so forth, uh, again, it is so utterly unlike the sorts of, the sort of regulations and guidelines that the law of Moses gives when it comes to servants. Again, the term servant is, uh, is a better rendering, but it could even mean worker, someone who is a hired worker for someone. Uh, so, so again, that term slavery, however, throws a lot of people off, and so they read all sorts of negative uh, baggage and emotion uh -huh. into that term when, you know, for example, uh, the, 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 you know, the person is, you know, if, if, he, if his master or employer um, strikes him so that he dies, well, that employer would be put to death. Mm. You, know, you know, so there's a capital offense if you do that to your servant. Uh, so again, far different from antebellum slavery. If you knock out his eye uh, or tooth, then you'd have to let him go. Mm. You, couldn't, you, know, you couldn't hold him on, under contract. So, so again, there are those sorts of provisions for those who are in servitude, but yet we, you know, we read through modern lenses, we kind of superimpose our own modern understanding of slavery and think, oh, look at how terrible that is. Actually, when you look at it, it's uh, actually a very humanized uh, institution. It is something that, of course, in it, it's far superior to what you see going on in other parts of the ancient Near East. So, so the, the Israelite law is actually an improvement. So look at, com compare the Israelites to what's going on in other parts of the Middle East, or the ancient Near East. You see that the, the differences are often really you know, quite great, quite remarkable, and, and, uh, and, and, and we ought to look into those sorts of things. So, so again, we might, yeah, I can go in to talk about uh, a number of other issues as well. well. I mean, you, you just said something that will fire off some of my uh, listeners. You said slavery is a humanized institution given the perspective of the ancient Near East. 
was slavery a necessary institution that needed to be there and the Israelite culture under divine mandate regulated it? Or what, yeah. what's happening here? Why didn't God just say, as my colleagues would ask me, knock this whole institution off the floor? Yeah. This is unacceptable <clears throat> given the divine mandate yeah. of treating well, people in the Mago Dei. Yeah, well, I'd say they are being treated in the image of God. Um, that that's the problem. A lot of moderns think they're not mm. when they see, read the term slavery. And unfortunately, a lot of Bible translations use that term very freely. Whereas in the King James Version, 1611, the term slave in the Old Testament is used only once. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, here you have all that's happened, colonialism, slavery, uh, Jim Crow laws, and so forth. You ha have all of this negative baggage, and then the term slavery is used... <coughs> Uh, you know, Nine. multiple times. You know, or just ton, you know, just you know, you know, you know, hundred, you know, you know, under a couple, couple hundred times. But, but you you see that you know in, in modern translations you see well why use that loaded term when say maybe someone like servant or or even worker would suffice. Don't use this loaded terminology that will throw off a lot of modern readers. Okay. So so again, there's a faulty <clears throat> inference that's made already. But secondly, when you look at the kind of, you know, when, who is the person who is, you know, put into servitude? Well, it's a person who's poor and has no, it's a last resort sort of thing. You, so you basically contract yourself, sell yourself mm -hmm. to someone uh, who can care for you, give you food, clothing, shelter, and work. Uh, it's actually not a bad arrangement. Those who are servants in a household actually become part of the family. Yeah. Uh, they, this is something that gives security to people and so forth. And some people uh, found this arrangement so pleasing that they would actually commit themselves to a lifetime of this mm -hmm. rather than just having a short term of this, uh, you know, up to seven years. So, so, um, you know, so basically, this is, this, the servitude becomes a kind of safety net for people who, when they're impoverished, they have no other alternative. It's like the social security system. And typically you would uh, contract yourself out to someone who is a relative who within your own tribal clan territory. And so there is a certain familiarity uh, and, and so forth. So it's not as though it's, it's, you're, you're being deported. Mm -hmm. Also, you're not, you, you become a servant because you contract yourself for this. Uh, it's not as though you've been kidnapped. Kidnapping was a capital offense. Uh, that's how modern slave trade got going. So, so again, a lot of modern uh, inferences, you know, you've you got a lot of modern assumptions are being imported into the biblical text that the, that the biblical text would repudiate. Okay. And so I think that there's just a, there are a lot of misunderstandings about this. Now, there's one text that, um, that some people will bring up, Leviticus 25, where you can, uh, you can take people who are foreigners um, you know, you, you may take them and, uh, and, and they could be your servants mm -hmm. uh, perpetually. Mm -hmm. um, well, what is, that, you know, what is that all about? Well, how do you acquire mm -hmm. people as servants? Well, often through, you know, pr you know, their, 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 you know war, you know, they're, they're, after a war, there are people who are left uh, alive. And, uh, and so what do you do with them? Uh, they have no alternative. Uh, and so to... Uh, fix, uh, to attach themselves to Israelite homes might be the best alternative. It's actually a, a very humane alternative compared to well, they'd just be mm. they'd just be put to death by you know other armies, but the, the but not so with the with the Israelites in, in kind of general warfare. You also have 
uh, you know, you also have uh, certain. Uh, it says that the person who you know you can take these people who are servants, you know, from foreigners, and and they can be your servants. And again, they could that can come through a number of different ways, but it's not through kidnapping. That's oh, that's okay. uh, that's uh, that's you know, and then it goes on to say that the person who is the you know the uh, this the the alien or sojourner among mm-hmm. you. Again, you could have these aliens and sojourners to work for you, but if that person becomes a person of means, mm-hmm. then he could actually hire an Israelite to work for him. Mm-hmm. So is that, you know, and he can, and he can, you know, the term they use acquire the same word that's used of acquiring these foreigners. He may acquire an Israelite. Does that mean the Israelite is just property? No, no. of course not. Um, uh, he may purchase him. Yeah, that, that that word is used of you know God's redeeming or purchasing or okay. uh, Israel as they came out of uh, you know as they came out of Egypt uh, through through the Red Sea. That you know Exodus fifteen uses that same term of the people of Israel. So does that does that mean that they're property and so forth? No, uh, no not at all. Okay. But I think a lot of people who are critical uh, when it comes to say Leviticus fifteen, they haven't read far enough uh, to verse forty seven where it talks about how this. This this foreigner, this uh, this uh, sojourner, mm-hmm. could actually become a person of means. Um, so he's not required to maintain a lifetime of service within Israel. In fact, he can even rise in station, become a person of means, and even hire. If you know, uh, again, if there's no one to redeem the Israelite, but he can even hire an Israelite. He can acquire him. Um, but it doesn't mean that the Israelite is just property. Let's start landing this plane. Let's draw this into a literary perspective. You've been challenged on this at a recent conference you did last year with Defenders Media with Veracity Hill here in Chicago on this question by some of our liberal colleagues. And uh, even some people take a slightly different perspective than you do on it. Walk with me here. You have the command given to Saul and his armies. It's very similar command given to Joshua and his armies. You're one of the soldiers. You go into this village. You're soldiers out there. You're ready. You're armed for combat. You have the sword in your hand, you walk into a home, you see a family. God says, commanded, kill every living thing, do not leave anything alive, including children. You're thinking, this is what Herod commanded a thousand, a thousand plus, two thousand plus years later. Hold on a minute. Oh, not two thousand, probably a thousand five. The soldier drops his sword and says, I cannot do this, as he looks into the eyes of a little child and walks away. He's being disobedient to the command given to him by Yahweh, by God. But is he doing the right thing? Bring some perspective on this. Well, uh, my book, uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? Matt Flanagan and I, we go into the wilderness. New Zealand, yeah. New Zealand. But he, we we look at this. Again, keep in mind the... uh, in in First Samuel 15, the Amalekites were told <coughs> that Saul had, Saul had already utterly destroyed the Amalekites. At the end of the book, David is fighting, and he is fighting against an army of the Amalekites. Well, hmm. did Saul already do that? Well, the narrator tells us that he did. Um, that Saul utterly destroyed them. And it's interesting that as you look at the the very battle um, that is being highlighted. Um, he's going to a pitched battle with the Amalekites. You have another group of people, the Kenites, who are there, and Saul says to them, we don't have an issue with you. Um, you know, and so they end up leaving. 
So do you think that there are going to be women and children hanging around in this uh, citadel where there's this pitched battle that they're preparing for? Uh, no. Also keep in mind in chapter 14, verse 48 of 1 Samuel, just prior to this, you have the Amalekites who've just raided the Israelites. So you have, the, you know, again, they've been a thorn in the side of the Israelites from the very beginning, from the time that the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea and uh, they were attacked, um, so, you know, blindsided okay. uh, by the Amalekites in Exodus 17. So you have mentioned that there's utter, you know, utter dis you know, destruction. Again, there's right. even question... How do we even interpret utter destruction? Well, I mean, there, there is hyperbole, but also in John and uh, John and Harvey Walton in their book uh, on the uh, on the lost world of the uh, mm -hmm. the Israelite conquest, lost they are they argue that the term utterly destroy is not a proper rendering of this term. It has to do with identity removal and one key person who was identity who who was kind of a rallying point for the Amalekites was the king whom Saul kept alive. Mm. So he had violated that Agag. um you know a King Agag and uh, so Samuel thrust him through. Um, but but again the, the, you, a lot of times you see that uh, for example in Leviticus 17 27 you see mention of a you know a, a servant or an animal or a field that is again harem what does that mean? Utter, utterly destroyed? No, it, it means removed from ordinary use so that the, the person who's going to, he's going to serve in the tabernacle or the field is going to be given to the priests. But it's not as though the, the field is burned you know, or destroyed somehow. Uh, you can have, you know, in fact, there are only three cities that were destroyed in, you know, in the book of Joshua. You know, Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. Um, but all the rest remained intact, and basically what the Israelites were to do was to drive out the inhabitants, and again, these were largely military um, citadels, uh, fortresses, <clears throat> to drive them out, and then they went back to their base camp in Gilgal. But if somebody went back into that city, you know, man, woman, child, they would leave themselves open to uh, destruction. Uh, so the, the first command was to drive them out, and if anybody remains behind, if anybody's foolish enough to go back in, then they would then their lives would be forfeit. They would uh, leave themselves open to uh, to to being harmed. So the first command is to drive them out. The second command is if anybody's still sticking around, then they're you know in these cities that are set aside from ordinary use, <clears throat> then they could be put to death. So so there's 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 more going on here uh, than <clears throat> than meets the eye. God. Uh, tells, you know, God said he is going to utterly destroy, you know, before the Babylonian captivity, all the, all the cities of Judah. And they're going to be in everlasting desolation. Well, one, uh, <clears throat> Judah's still around uh, after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the cities are only going to be mm -hmm. um, abandoned uh, for 70 years. Uh, so again, there's very strong hyperbolic sweeping language that's often going along with this. Uh, so that's another component of all of this too. So this goes, that question I asked you earlier, there still stands, it goes down to the Abrahamic uh, sacrifice of Isaac as well. If a divine <coughs> command is given to do this act, which we see as a sword and critic art called existentially problematic, or you suspend the transcendent in order for you to accept the ethical or the other way around, would you be ethical to walk away from this kind of perspective? Is it a test from God to see whether you even do it? It becomes really convoluted ethically. Yeah. Well, I mean... If, if God, again, 
what we have mentioned earlier on is that this is exceptional warfare. Mm. This is warfare that is, uh, again, highly regulated. It is limited geographically. It is limited to a certain people. Uh, it is also something that is in place, uh, assuming that you know, the part one, to drive them out, is in place. And so, again, if they're still sticking around, then they leave themselves vulnerable to, uh, to harm. But <clears throat> keep in mind that these things would be wrong if a, an all-good, all-wise uh, God um, were not commanding these sorts of things. There may be certain provisional things that are commanded that are out of the ordinary, that are not normally done, um, but uh, that may be for a particular morally justifiable reason, uh, you know, that they are, uh, you know, to be carried out. So, for example, a, <clears throat> we, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's always immoral to take innocent human life. Well, there may be some exceptions to that, that it's, there may be moral justification. For example, when a, a woman is, uh, you know, has an ectopic pregnancy, mm -hmm. the, 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 uh, the, fertilized egg is in the fallopian tube yes. rather than implanted in the uterus. Well, mm. um, to, in order to salvage at least the mother's life, then the life of the unborn is, you know, again, it's not saying we're celebrating this or, you know, we're, it, it's a tragic thing. But, but it, again, it's something that's morally justifiable in order to save mm. that other life. Uh, so taking innocent human life would be morally justifiable. Or when a, when a, when a plane has been hijacked, exactly. it's going to be used to, uh, as a weapon of mass destruction yes. to kill thousands. Well, if a president or prime minister says to shoot the plane out of the sky, well, I'd say it's morally justifiable, even though it means that the, those on board, men, innocent men, women, and children, uh, that they would perish uh, as a result of that. By the Bush administration, I remember 9 -11. It was, yeah. yeah. So, so in this sort of a scenario, uh, there would be some occasions on which, you know, again, it's not a universal norm, it's, it's the exception to the rule, mm. um, um, you know, that there are some duties that may be overridden in cases of supreme emergency. Okay. And so there, that this would be one of those cases. What about, well, what about um, Abraham and Isaac? Well, one, God had already promised Abraham that his son Isaac would be the father of, uh, you know, and bring blessing to many nations. Um, so he already knew that there would be, uh, you know, that that uh, ultimately harm would not come to him in sort of some sort of ultimate way, he, because he says, we will go and worship and we will return, he tells his servants. God will provide. God, and, and God, of course, he said God will provide. And, uh, and so uh, you also have a lot of, you know, a lot that's going on behind the scenes that we don't know, like, for example, Isaac is presumably old enough to even overpower yeah. his father because he's supposed to carry the wood. Yeah. Um, and uh, But yet there must be some sort of an understanding that this is what God has promised, this is what God has commanded, but God is going to work it out. And so you have Isaac who is part of this, he's cooperating with this process. So so you'd say, yeah, there, there are some things, you know, ordinarily you, this would not be commanded. Uh, in fact, God, you know, Abraham doesn't yet know that mm. the that infant that infant or child sacrifice mm. is something that is uh, would be prohibited yes. uh, by God. In fact, it's a lesson that God is saying, "No, I'm not going to go this way. Yes. Uh, I'm not going to do this." But Abraham doesn't know. He, you know, he's living in a culture where yeah. this is happening, and so he doesn't know what uh, what uh, the true God would require of him. But he goes along with this and then finds out that, no, God isn't going to go this pathway. 
Um, but uh, but so so again, he's you know, he, but he does know that God is going to do something that is you know that he's going to come back a lot with his son alive. So he has been reassured uh, of that. So so again, you know, yes, there is there are certain divine commands that are given that may seem out of the ordinary. That may seem like how could God command this, but. But God has more sufficient reasons for commanding this. There are some things that God says he would not command that did not even enter his mind, he mentions in, in, in the book of, uh, of Jeremiah. So, so there are some, it's not as though God can just flip it you know, and say, mm-hmm. I, this, is, this is good, this is bad, but then he flips them and says the opposite. Um, no, it's not as though good and, and, and bad change places here. God could not command something that is intrinsically evil. Uh, but if God commands something that is difficult, he will have... Uh, morally sufficient reasons for doing so. Final question. This leads us to this analogy with Abraham and Isaac. Many of my brothers and sisters and others who are of different faiths or different perspectives listening to this now and watching this feel like Isaac walking up the mountain with God and they have the, the, uh, the wood on their back. What are you doing, God? There's chaos around them. The, the, the ground is shaking under them. The bodies king inside them, there's um, betrayals, pain, suffering in people. One of the major motifs of Logically Faithful in my ministry yeah. is to help to equip people to deal with that. Yeah. Give some final words to people who are in the storm. Yeah. Um, with your background in apologetics, how does that become an anchor for them? Or how do they deal with it? And how yeah. did you deal with it? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think even just borrowing from the Abraham Isaac motif, uh, Abraham does say that God will provide. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and we do see that in Jesus Christ, God does provide. And, and the language that's used in, say, Romans chapter 8 is borrowing from Genesis uh, 22, where you did not withhold your one and only son. Only son yeah. uh, we read in Romans chapter 8 that God did not <laughs> withhold his son but freely gave him up for us all. Mm-hmm. And so here we have a picture of God, even though he stopped short with Isaac, he went the full way with his own son, that his son uh, willingly laid down his life uh, for us, that we might be reconciled to God, that God is not shrinking from doing the sorts of things that he's commanding Abraham to do, that God fully enters into this. Uh, God gives of himself freely so that we might be reconciled to God. And, and I think it does raise certain questions about the problem of evil. When, when we look at the chaos, the terrible things that happen in the world, all of us will have to make a choice. We'll have to say, am I going to privilege my limited experience with evil, uh, the, the, the things that I can see, is that going to be the privileged starting point by which I make judgments about God and so forth? Or will I take a stand on the fact that there is a God who enters into this world, who gives himself freely for, for his enemies, mm-hmm. uh, that God in this sacrifice is guaranteeing that in the end everything is going to be made right, that this is the guarantee that God has not forgotten about us and that God is going to set everything right in the end, that 
that the Hitlers and Stalins of this world will not get away with murder, that cosmic justice will be done, that there will be a time when all tears are wiped away and that God's people will be with him forever, that all pain and sorrow will be gone. Will I take a stand on that instead? Mm. So, so again, there's a choice here. Which will I privilege? Am I going to privilege this uh, cosmic picture where cosmic justice is done, where uh, s sorrow and tears are removed? Or am I going to take the view that, oh, there can't be a loving God because look at all the evil in the world. And basically, I'm, I'm left without any sort of resolution no. to the problem of evil. Uh, cosmic justice will not be done, mm. that there will not be a time when all tears are wiped away, that there will not be any, that, that God has not acted in this world in order to bring about redemption, uh, to bring about a resolution of the problem of evil. I'm basically saying, no, I'm going to reject all of those things, and I'm going to side with my own perspective on evil. And fundamentally, it's a, you know, everybody has to deal with the problem of evil. Everyone has to address the question, does my worldview do a better job of dealing with the problem of evil than the alternatives? And I'd say the Christian faith does the best job of dealing with the, you know, with, with this wide sweep of issues. Mm -hmm. When you look at uh, a world without God, a world that is devoid of God, and well, what resources does that bring mm -hmm. to addressing the problem of evil? I'd say you're taking a stand on the wrong thing. Take a stand on you know, with, with God who has chosen to act in this world, who suffers with us as we, uh, you know, as we go through this veil of tears, uh, but who is guaranteed that everything is going to be set right in the end. He guarantees that virtue and happiness will ultimately converge uh, for those who have put their trust in God. So that uh, so that there will you know there will not be those Mother Teresas who lived self-sacrificially and so forth, but only to have the same kind of end as as, as Hitler and Stalin mm -hmm. who got away with murder. You recently did a seminar with the BLM when you said when life gets difficult and all hell breaks loose, I mean, yeah. the tendency is to turn away from God, but heaven's